Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Take a second to think about all the people you know. The friends, family, partners, coworkers, mentors, etc. Now think about all the people that they know. And then all the people that those people know. It all forms a bustling, complicated, interconnected web. Welcome to the season finale of Web of Women, the show that dives into the identities and relationships that form who we are as individuals and communities. I'm your host, Jenny Kaplan, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Wonder Media Network. I can't believe it's that time. This experiment of a show is coming to a close. I decided to start the web to explore the connections between people. I wanted to spur the kinds of conversations that we don't have enough about politics, gender, identity, religion, and more. I started this season off by talking to four women I know from different parts of my life. For episode four, I interviewed a new connection, Denora Gattaccio, New York City Executive Director of Generation Citizen. She told me about how she's a democracy ninja. Then, each of the women I interviewed picked someone from her life to talk to. So, in episode 8, Denora talked to her friend, Glinda Carr, co-founder of Higher Heights. Now, we're extending the interview chains one step further. It's Glinda's turn to pick someone from her life to bring into the conversation. I am Glinda Carr, the co-founder of Higher Heights for America, and I'm so excited to join the Wonder Media Network and for an amazing conversation with a great friend and colleague and sorority sister. What you will find out in this conversation is is full circles. The full circle ability for you to connect with like-minded people in your life who come in and out of your life exactly when they're supposed to. That's right. Um, And so I love how she's already like jumping in like the amen corner. (laughs) Um, So we're going to spend... Um, some time today talking to Michelle Jawando, who I think is one of the amazing legal minds in this country. Uh, you'll hear a little bit about her journey today, about her juggling um, balanced life. I am connecting today live from Brooklyn, New York, in our office uh, here in Higher Heights. Yay! Well, thank you, sis. It is always great to spend any bit of time with you. And the reason I say that is I truly think that God has blessed me with having you as a sister friend, as a soror. And I think of you and I try to praise you as much as I can because I'm so into us praising each other. Is really one of the leaders of our generation, someone who does the work in the front and in the back. And she does everything <laughs> all the time. And so I really want to honor her today. And I'm super excited. I'm coming from Silver Spring, New York. I mean, Silver Spring, New York. Here you go. Silver <laughs> Spring, Maryland. 
but I'm from New York. But I am here in Silver Spring now with my husband and my four kids, one of which is a newborn, and one of them are sick, which means we're all sick. But it is great to um, be with my sister friend here today. Share with us a little bit about who you are. Who are your people? Who your tribe? Where do you come from? What brings you to you sitting on your couch? Um, (laughs) So, you know, I really trace so much of who I am to one of the matriarchs of my family, Lois Brown Evans. So my mother's side, she is a fourth generation New Yorker by way of Brooklyn and Queens. They came up through that great migration that we read in Half of a Yellow Sun and really just thought a lot about how they were going to create community and opportunity for people where they were and what they had. And so that industrious, hardworking African-American story that's so unique to our culture was so deeply embedded in me for such a long time. And the women on my mother's side of the family are praying women. They were preachers. They were teachers. And so that really, that component was so important to me. On the other side, on my father's side, we are immigrants from Bermuda and Jamaica. My grandparents met in London. My grandfather from Jamaica, my grandmother from Bermuda, and came over to the great borough of Brooklyn and then ended up landing in Queens. And so I had this really rich history growing up of spending summers in Bermuda and summers in Jamaica learning about my family history. Our family matriarch of our family was Lois Brown Evans, who was the first woman and the first Black woman on the island of Bermuda to become a lawyer. And so because of that, she was later knighted by the Queen of England. She became someone that was the leader of the civil rights movement for that time. And so much of her story and because of what she did, I remember being young on picket lines before I even really understood what that was and talking to my Lois about my decisions about if I was going to marry my husband and could I still do all the work and the dreams that I had and really just chatting and pouring out my soul with her. And I just feel so blessed because of that. So I think in so many ways, my family history has completely shaped the woman that I've become today. That is our first kind of circle moment, right? Um, So I, as you know, am also a Jamaican-American. And so the experience of having a very active father who, you know, I call it by day, he was, you know, the executive director of the West Indian Foundation in Connecticut. And my mother, who was obviously deeply rooted in generations of African-Americans here in, in the United States, that's Touch point one of why Michelle and I, I think, connect. And so share a little bit about your career path. How did you get to D.C.? How did you get to the Capitol? And tell us a little bit about that journey. Um, My story really became I was a civil rights lawyer at a law school identifying plaintiffs for litigation that we were trying to bring on behalf of impacted voters in states all over the country. But most of the time in states that we know consistently have problems in Florida, in Ohio, and in communities that look like us. And Barack Obama won. My newlywed husband was working with him in the Senate and then on the campaign and was going into the White House. And when Hillary Clinton was tapped to go into the administration at the head of state, there was a 
young representative from New York, Kirsten Gillibrand, that nobody knew, (laughs) that ended up getting appointed by our then governor, our first Black governor, David, and what happened then set off a cascade of moving pieces. And so I remember walking into meeting with Kirsten, my old boss, Congressman Gregory Meeks from New York said, listen, you got to meet with Michelle. If you're trying to work on these issues, if you're trying to um, work on civil rights and women's issues, the only person that you should be talking to is Michelle. So I went into this meeting and I thought it was like an advisory capacity, like These are the groups that you should meet with, you know, the congressmen. And before that conversation was finished, within minutes of meeting her, she said, well, you have to come and work for me now. And I said, you know what, you're right. (laughs) And I was one of her first hires and worked with her for almost seven years. And it was really a blessing for me having the opportunity to work with her for so long. I consider her a mentor and a friend. I have three girls and one boy, and the baby boy is the newborn. But I had all of my daughters were working for her. And when I first started working with her, she was a new mom herself. She was pumping in the office. She was a fierce woman about protecting the time that she had with her kids. I had never seen all of that packaged together where you have this love for policy, you have this love for the work that you're doing, but you also are deeply committed to family. And that was something that I knew that I wanted to emulate for myself. And it was exciting to be a part of an office that let me work on things like Don't Ask, Don't Tell and paid family leave. And I really was able to lead the charge in developing all of her policy around rape and sexual assault and military and college campuses. And just having an opportunity to grow in the Senate, which is, it's aggressively white is the only way I can can describe it. There's very few meetings where there were other people that looked like me, that had the same texture of hair like me, that were my same gender. That rarely happened. And so to be in a place and to be in such a senior leadership role working for her and having that confidence was a great step for me. And I really appreciate and loved every moment of it. Yeah, I know you left the senator's office over and, and lead some important work at the Center for American Progress. Share a little bit about that and then your decision to move into the private sector and how you feel that your background helps to shape corporate policy in a way that affects our communities. Well, you know, I think there's one thing that is a consistent through line for me wherever I go. It is how are my values impacting the work that I'm doing? And so I can always trace back that core for me because that is so important. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why we're friends because our work is such a representation of who we are. So it's hard to imagine me being in any space where I didn't feel like I could be who I was and I could represent 
my community and the work that I feel is so important. And so when I left the Senate, I had the opportunity to go and work for another badass woman near Tandon who was president at the Center for American Progress. And I went and served as her vice president of our legal progress team, really looking at how courts are impacting every facet of our lives in ways that we don't even quite understand. And the Trump administration has spent so much time impacting so many ways of the judiciary that I think for the first time, People really have a public consciousness about the judiciary, even in a way that I don't think was as apparent with Obama. It's really fascinating to kind of see that juxtaposition between those two moments. So leading kind of our courts work, our voting, kind of civil rights, working with an amazing dynamic group of women for our women's project and our women's team there through a mutual mentor of both Glenda and I, Jocelyn Fry, and her leadership around women's issues and labor economic issues for years and decades. And just really having the opportunity again to continue to grow and develop my voice, to write and to publish, to be a talking head, to host a podcast, to really even push myself out the bounds of what I thought I could do. And I love that. I love being a little scared at work, right? And doing something new and talking about being a little scared, jumping into the tech world and going to Google. And I was just kind of minding my business. This is what I tell people. It's so important to have good relationships with a lot of different people because I had former Republican colleagues who said, hey, I think you might enjoy We're really trying to push the boundaries of who we are in the tech community and really reassert those founding principles and our values that we thought were really important at the founding. And how do we develop those relationships to both represent that and how do we continue to assert that? I kind of took that as a challenge and an opportunity for someone like me to be visible again in a senior role at a tech company, to be at the forefront of the intersection of things that I've loved my whole life. I've always loved science fiction and Star Wars and the ability to meld that with my civic activism and my beliefs seemed like it was like a match made in heaven. So That's my newest adventure for right now. And I still get the butterflies. So I think that that's a good sign. That definitely is a good sign. Like when you are excited about getting up and taking your mission into whatever organization that you're currently in, it's something that is fulfilling, I think, as professionals. Yeah. You've mostly obviously worked at the intersection of race and gender over your career. And you come from a politically active family. So When was the first time that you were aware of gender and how gender could affect or has affected your career path? They're all great questions. That's why I love you. But it's so funny. I definitely can remember clearly the first time I was racially made aware of my difference of being Black. That was like at seven years old. I was camping. I just thought Black people went camping. I didn't know (laughs) that was not uh, a thing that a lot of Black people did. And I remember this little boy calling me a nigger and and I had to like school him on Dr. Martin Luther King and Ida B. Wells. And I just thought it was just what was normal. But I don't really remember my moment when the lens of my gender really hit me that young. 
it wasn't until I got to college. I am a proud HBCU alum of the greatest HU, Hampton University. (laughs) That's for all the Howard people listening, especially, but for my Hampton family. And I remember being on campus and having a conversation about sexual assault. And for the first time, felt a little bit ashamed about this cloak of womanhood, right? And like the burden that came with it. And it was a really eye-opening experience because I have a very non-gender constricting father, right? He would take me with him wherever he went. And that was just the type of dad that I had. And so I didn't feel those constraints growing up. It wasn't until I was in this situation where you're socialized to say, hey, you're supposed to do this and you're supposed to do that in college where I really felt for the first time being aware of my gender in a way that could be a negative. Thinking about sexual assault, thinking about experiences, and then recognizing that there was also something I could do. So at that moment, I then organized one of the first Take Back the Night rallies at an HBCU at Hampton, because that was what I had to figure out how to move this from this moment of realization and understanding and move that along the trajectory to some form of empowerment. But that was a really powerful moment for me and one that I remember, but it was interesting. It didn't hit me until much later in life. Hey, Jenny, what's up? Hey, Shira. Not much. I'm just working away over here. That's so lovely. I'm curious, how have you used Skype recently? Well, as we grow under media network, increasingly, we're having conversations with people all over the country. And in order to facilitate those conversations, we have to have a reliable tool to video chat with people from all different kinds of locations. So we use Skype. That's so lovely. What else does Skype do? Well, as you know, Shira, Web of Women is sponsored exclusively by Skype, which is a Microsoft product. Individuals and companies all over the world use Skype to connect with other people just the way that we're using it. Millions of people and businesses use Skype to make free video and voice calls, whether they're one-on-one or with groups. You can also send instant messages and share files. So special thanks to Skype for their support of this season of Web of Women. I also think it's important to note that While Skype facilitates conversations like the ones that have happened on this show throughout the season, they don't necessarily agree with everything that's being said. All of the opinions that have been shared belong solely to the people who've expressed them. Let's get back to the show. Bye. Bye. Coming from, both of us coming from very strong family, active family background. I think prepared us for many of the obstacles and opportunities that we face as Black women, not only in the workplace, but as we move about society. So coming from a politically active family, I'm assuming you were like my family. It was like non-negotiable. You were working on somebody's campaign. You were, you know, my mother put me in her car when I turned 18 and drove me down to City Hall to register to vote. It was a non-negotiable. 
how did politics very early affect you as a young woman thinking about uh, a career path? Yeah, well, I think there were three moments that really stick out for me. So going back to not an American experience, but in Bermuda, you know, Bermuda is a complicated island in that when many of the other African or Caribbean islands were moving in the way towards independence, Bermuda had an internal battle about that and did not move to independence ultimately. But what they did seek to do is at least have some self-governance. And that was my family's mission, right? I mean, their long-term goal would have definitely been independence. But at the beginning, it was like, let's get some basic human rights and dignity. And so I remember going to this march, being five with my my family and and just seeing how many people were excited about this thing around voting, right? And how exciting that was. And so I, there was this positive attribute that I always ascribed to that moment at five when I saw people excited about trying to gain this right to vote right? Um, and suffrage. And, and so it's really interesting in how memories plaster themselves on your memory and then impact you for the rest of your life. Growing up in New York, you know, we had these old antiquated voting machines. And every time I would go in with my mom and my dad, but before my, my mom and my dad would make sure that we had a conversation about who we were voting for and why. And who was really working for our community and who was working against it. And going to those community association meetings and what that was all about. And there was just always this sense of community. I never felt afraid in my community. I never felt like a sense of lack because I always knew so many people who cared about the place where I lived. And I pray so many kids have that experience because I loved growing up in the community of Queens Village where I grew up, right? It gave me something that to this day I really treasure. And I think for me, it was why when I went to Hampton, it was just like a no-brainer. I was going to be class president, right? I was like, okay, I just have to do this because then I could work on everything politically that I wanted to do and, (laughs) and help to kind of move my community towards further enfranchisement and use our power as a voting block in this community of Virginia, because I knew we could, and I knew we had the power to do so. And that was because of how I was raised. So, I mean, I think voting and just that connection with community has always just been these tenants in my life that I just hold. And, you know, last weekend had my kids out in another parade and talking about voting because that's part of the tradition. (laughs) (laughs) You're like generation, the third generation out knocking on doors. You know, we are on the road to 2020, which is powered by Black women. Black women will, you know, be a driving force in the next presidential election. But this is your first election, well, presidential election, with now four children, in addition to your family, a young Black boy, and, you know, your husband is a newly elected official in Maryland. So going into this, you know, uh, 2020 presidential cycle, I say that because every election to us is important, but in this particular lens of the presidential election, what is your thoughts now as a mom of four, 
in a different phase of your life. Won't say how old you are. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. <laughs> you know, it's probably also your first election cycle that you haven't actually been working on the inside either of government and or a campaign. How are you looking at this, you know, the next 19 months? How many months? Are wow. Yeah. Whoa. Uh, I hadn't even thought about that. You are right. This is like the first time professionally I've been in a separate space. I will say that there are so many of the Democratic candidates that I've been fortunate enough to know or to work with throughout my career that there's an excitement that I have just about the caliber of the talent that we have coming to bear. And it also reminds me that anything is possible (laughs) and that in every dark situation, there is always a silver lining because I think that there is this moment of engagement that is a direct result to, I think, for particular communities, a really painful two years, right? So I think 2020, for me, the biggest thing that has really changed, I now have a young son, I also now have a husband who's an elected official. And I think I am really engaged in my local community in a way that I wasn't. Like, I've always been involved in national politics. I've always been involved in federal politics. But I am, like, digging in on, like, road expansion projects (laughs) And my community, like, what's up? And what are they doing about this? And talking to my husband about it. It's also really interesting, this vantage of being a wife of an elected official who maybe is pushing boundaries. He's only the second African-American ever in the history of the county to be in his position. And how malaise and racism and systemic racism, how it is both a learned behavior, even in progressive places, right? Because it's Silver Spring, Maryland, right? So everything's all good. No, it's not all good. And the variations of the way that racism and ageism and every ism that we can think, how they play themselves out in the policies that we put forward and we say they're okay, are tragic in some ways. And so to see him kind of fighting those fights and then for us to come home and to strategize and to think through how we're going to handle it is a real both challenge and an opportunity, but it's also added a different dimension to our marriage, which is really interesting. It's really interesting how that's played out. So for 2020, now really thinking, my daughter always says she's going to be president my oldest, Aaliyah. So when I told her about Kamala Harris, she was like, wait a minute. So does that mean she could beat me? And I'm like, Aaliyah, (laughs) there's always space. I said, we do not operate from a place of lack. (laughs) Somebody's shine doesn't take away from yours. So it's really interesting. (laughs) So I am going to enjoy watching this, but I really am like digging in locally just because you see them, there's mess. There's so much mess and so much stuff to unpack. But if we can do some of that in our communities locally, I think there's such a power there. I know you're a driven person, but what drives you? What is your current personal mission statement? And I'm going to add to this so you can answer all at the same time. I don't think we're always where we think we are supposed to be. We're where God 
wants us to be. You know, if you look back at the 12 year old Michelle, who did you want to be when you grew up? And are you where you thought you were going to be? In some ways, yes. I was always a very goal oriented person. I knew I was going to be a lawyer. I knew I was going to work in politics. I always said I was going to have four kids. I just thought I was going to have two girls, two boys, and I have three girls (laughs) and one boy. But I would say that there are three things that stand out for Michelle at 12 versus Michelle in this phase. One, I don't think we tell our children when you achieve certain things, what to expect once you got there, what do you want to do next, right? Like, so we spend a lot of times about like building your dream and this is your goal. Okay, when you do that, what happens next? Is that okay? Do you stop there? Are you complacent? And so what I've recognized is like, I wanted to be a senior advisor to powerful members of the Congress. Okay, I've done that. I've been a vice president at Think Tank. I've done that. So what comes next? I think you, what I recognize is that my dreams have had to expand with age because I've had to even challenge myself to what was possible. I never thought I would do TV and radio and podcasts and all of that. I didn't even know that was something to aspire for or to think about. And my world was open. And so I think where I am now is I'm trying to expand my dream about what's possible. My second thing is I've always said that part of my legal career was a part of my ministry. And I think at this stage, I also recognize that I want to do more ministry ministry because I just think that there's such a brokenness in so many of our, particularly of our girls, that I want to just pour and heal. And I just feel that so deeply. And so I'm really excited because I'm going to be doing some preaching at the end of the month. And one of my sisters in Christ is we're working on some things together. And so it just really feels good to have a different part of me to explore and to really use in service and giving. And I know that is not for everybody, but that definitely speaks to a part of me that I think for the first time I'm openly embracing. You should make sure I get an invite. Ah, here you go. (laughs) You know, my brother Kurt that, you know, has recently come out with a new single and it's something that I've been carrying with. I'm obsessed with the song uh, Mm. called Bless Somebody Else. It's a tribute to his business partner who passed away four Mm. years ago. And there's a piece in the song that says that I believe you embody this. So the song talks about blessing somebody else. So Mm. you've obviously been a blessing in my life, but it also talks about inspiring somebody else. And I think that that is who you are and that's the journey you're on. And it is something you're doing professionally and now as you shared personally. And so our time is is, is closing to an end. Ah! <laughs> this always <laughs> happens, y'all, when we get together. Like we could do this for hours and we have. So. <laughs> yeah, we could go on and on. That's you right. know, but Denora challenged me to think of somebody I wanted to interview. And I literally thought about you during our recording. and. I know you're busy, you know, spending with you. I think your last month at home. Yes, my last month of maternity leave. (laughs) But I would love to challenge you to think about who you might want to bring into this conversation. A woman in your network that, again, as we said, um, blesses others and inspires others that you think our listeners 
would love to hear her journey. Would you be willing to find someone in your circle? I would. And I love this challenge because it is, I think it also speaks to like the depth of our relationships and our network. Like when you just think about how rich our lives are because of the people, like how you bless me through the years because of your friendship. So I have adored this moment of being with you. And again, I really, I really love you. And I thank you for all you do for black women. I hope black women in America know how much you rep for them. And I love you for being my friend. Oh, so thank you all for joining the web and stay full of wonder. That's right. Thank you for listening to this episode of Web of Women. It's been an incredible experience. I learned that my web is filled with storytellers and women seeking to find common ground with opposing viewpoints. In some ways, my web of connections is diverse. In other ways, not so much. Common values reverberated throughout the episodes, helping me to understand what binds communities together. I'm so impressed and inspired by the people who participated in this project, and I'm excited for more to come. Thank you for embarking on this experiment with me. It's been awesome to try out this new kind of podcast. If you have any questions or feedback, or if you want to start your own web, email me at web at wondermedianetwork.com. You can also find us on Instagram at wmn.media and on Twitter at wmnmedia. This episode was produced by me, Jenny Kaplan, with help from Allie Lindenberg, Shira Atkins, and Ben Brower. A huge thanks to Overcoats for the music and to the women of the web for making this show possible.